Thanks to Bombfell for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com/fool. That's bombfell.com/fool. It's Wednesday, May 31st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Molly Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Happy last day of May. Thank you. We're going to get to the whole sell in May and go away thing. We're going to get to that. Uh, one programming note uh, as I mentioned yesterday, Fool Fest begins tomorrow here in Alexandria, Virginia. So this is going to be a short week for Market Foolery. We will be back. So no episode tomorrow, but we will be back on Monday. Um, let's start with fashion retail, shall we? Sure. We'll start with Michael Kors. And their fourth quarter results are a nice reminder that. When you're an investor, you kind of want to look beyond the top and bottom line results because both of those were pretty good from Michael Kors. But then you get to things like same store sales falling 14%, and that's when the wheels start to come off the wagon. Yeah, uh, it's it's not you don't have a long life uh, if you're at same store sales decreasing by 11%. Uh, indefinitely, not to say that that's what's going to happen here, but that is probably the most important metric for any retail operator. And so, uh, Coors actually opened up over a hundred stores last year, so their total sales for the year uh, weren't weren't really down that much. Uh, but they shouldn't have been opening those stores, right? <laughs> and by the way, part of the announcement today was, ah, oh, we're going to be closing some stores. Yes, by some like a hundred to a hundred twenty-five or something like that. So they're going to be closing a lot of stores, and I think that's probably the right move for a brand which is lacking in exclusivity. Uh, I think that may be part of the problem here. Well, and you know, a good chance to remind, particularly newer listeners or newer investors, that when we're talking about same-store sales, we're talking about locations that have been open for at least a year. So when you open new locations and there's a lot of excitement, hey, we've got a Michael Kors in town now, and a lot of people rushing to buy stuff. That's great. That doesn't go into the same store sales equation there, and so that's how you end up with sales look overall sales looking pretty good, profits coming in a little bit higher than expected, but those comparable sales just getting crushed. Yeah, they had opened up 159 net new stores uh, over the past year, and that included 111 that were previously licensed operations in China, and the company acquired them. I don't know if it regrets making that acquisition already, uh, but it has had to write down a large amount, about $150 million or something like that, uh, in the quarter, basically admitting the amount of money that we uh, invested and spent opening stores is was too much and the value of the stores is not worth uh, what we paid uh, to put into them so that's a big sort of quote unquote non-cash hit to earnings uh, nevertheless it's a recognition that they never should have been opened in the first place what do you say to someone who is looking at this stock falling today don't <laughs> really let me finish my question though it's at a five-year low, and so it's been around for five years. <laughs> someone who looks at this and says, "Look, yes, they don't have exclusivity, but they have a pretty solid brand, and maybe this stock is cheap. Is it cheap, or is it just cheap for really good reasons?" 
it's in retail and there's nothing particularly distinguishing it. Once upon a time, it was a growth story, uh, a reasonably impressive growth story that is either on pause or over. Uh, I don't have an answer to that, but they have announced $1 billion share buyback uh, authorization. That doesn't mean they're going to use it. They finished out their previous share authorization. Uh, so they bought back the shares they said they were going to buy back previously, and now they are going to start over again. And while they've been buying back all these shares, the stock has been going from $100 a share to $33 a share. So they're cheaper today, but all that money was wasted, basically. It We'll see over time if, if Five years from now, the stock is back to 100. Then they uh, made good use of the capital, but they are going to have to buck the current trends in retail for that to occur, and they're going to have to buck the specific trends of you know negative double-digit same-store sales that are happening to them right now. On the flip side, in the world of fashion apparel, we've got J. Jill. Their first quarter results were basically the opposite of Michael Kors. Their same-store sales were up 10. percent That's that's enormous. It is enormous. That's that's awfully good in uh, in retail these days. And you know they have the advantage of I think being able to focus only on women. Whereas Michael Kors, is, I don't know what the brand. What does the Kors brand say to you? What do you? Th- I think Kors and and Coach have had a pretty similar story over the last decade, which is starting out with sort of accessories and bags. And then, at various points in their histories over the past decade, deciding we're going to go more mainstream, we're going to do some discounting. And then part of the story is also, well, we're going to ex- expand the brand to men, and we're going to, you know, accessorize men as well. I'm, Whereas to your point, J. Jill, they're not they're not trying to reach you and me. Yeah, I'm not listening. Uh, I am listening to your answer, and I'm getting. I don't know what Coors is exactly. <laughs> Right, uh, and I have and, a rough idea. Yeah, you've got many ideas. It could be a discounter at times. It could be for both men and women. It could be accessories. Oh, but there's some. There's also some, uh, you know, wearables. I, I, I don't know that they have succeeded in what they wanted to do, uh, because they they're a bit of a confused story, and and that is part of what is going on in their stores. And J. Jill does not suffer from the same. Uh, inability of consumers to figure out what they're going to get when they go either online, uh, which they're doing a good job at, and I think about 40% of their sales are um, direct, uh, and that's a better equation these days. Than, 40%? That's high. Uh, and direct, I mean that in a good way. Yeah, direct-to-consumer net sales uh, were 42.6% of total net sales, up from 40%, 40.7% last year for J. Jill. So, that's part of a good mix, uh, a, you know, completely nutritious uh, breakfast, I would say. <laughs> you know, to have both stores and uh, catalog, which is where you do most of your J. Jill shopping. Right? I d- I've, I've done some shopping from J. Jill, and they, like, like a lot of retailers, even the retailers who aren't that good at selling things repeatedly, they all seem to be good at once you're on their email list or catalog list, they're going to keep sending you stuff. So from time to time, I over the past few years, I've bought things for my wife at JGL, and then I get I get on the email list, and occasionally I get the catalogs. And because I'm having it delivered here to the office, 
because I don't I don't want her to see the stuff showing up at the house if it's her birthday or Christmas or something like that. Uh, then that of course results in J Jill catalogs being put on my desk because they've been addressed to me here at the office because this is where I have stuff shipped. Yeah, and then you, you get any raised eyebrows about that? Um, yeah, the occasional comment here or there, but right. nothing nothing terrible. Right. So they're doing a good job, and they're uh, I, are they like you know your your alumni association? Do they track you down when you move? <laughs> um, well, when I move my desk, you mean at the full? <laughs> Any moves you might make, you know, are they that good? You're you're giving them credit for uh, being able to keep track of you very well. Well, I mean, I it, yeah, but I mean, so is they're di- not hiring private detectives. Th- as far as yeah. I know, they're not. Um, you're but, not that good a customer. But to, but to your point about the omni-channel approach, I mean, they they've done that very well for years. They're not late to the game on that, and I think that's part of what we're seeing in their first quarter results. Yeah, they're they're. Uh, they know what they're doing. They know where their customers are, uh, and that's that's part of their press release when they talk about uh, our team is hyper focused on our customer, who she is, what she wants, and what is relevant to her. So they're not really speaking to you. But um, with this always in mind, we'll continue to light her with the product assortment, et cetera, et cetera, omni-channel shopping. So that is is working out very well. And you know we've got. Way too much retail space uh, used in this in this country, and it is declining uh, on a per capita basis. A lot of uh, things are going out of business, uh, and Coors isn't going out of business, but it is getting rid of a hundred plus stores. Last thing on J. Jill, this is not a big company. This is a five hundred million dollar company, and I think if they are executing this well, they have to be. Attracting the attention of potential bidders, and I'm I'm curious what your thought process is, uh, and to the extent that you can share, sort of at Motley Fool Funds where you work, the thought process of the team regarding this question: buying shares of a company and that they might be bought out at a premium is part of the thesis. Is that ever part of the thesis? And if so, how high up the list? Does that ever get? Because I could I could see someone looking at JGL thinking, boy, they're kind of getting it done on their own, and they're not that big. So it really wouldn't stun me if someone came in and said, yeah, we'll pay a billion dollars for that company. I don't think it's ever part of the thesis. It's part of the discussion sometimes that this is in the category of things which either ultimately gets acquired uh, or you know. Uh, has to take certain steps uh, somewhere down the line. And I don't think they are in that category. They might be in the category of uh, a company that serves one of the demographics that a you know a roll up of various chains for for women's clothing might not have um, in terms of what their category is. So they they but I don't know if people are desperate to acquire new retail brands these days. If they're small and they're crushing it, I, 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 I can I see someone making a pretty compelling case. And by the way, shares of JGL up eleven percent this morning. Uh, you know, you know, the time to buy uh, fashion retail is not usually when they're crushing it, because these things go in cycles. Now, JGL is, and I know virtually nothing uh, about any kind of fashion, but I, I don't think they're operating on the extremes or. Uh, trying to be as much of a trendsetter as something like Coors, so that there may be a greater degree of stability that you can find in in their 
operations. Um, I, I mentioned at the, right at the top last day in May, um, and we continue to hear the old adage, sell in May and go away, the idea that you should just you know, when you get to the summer as an investor, you're going to be better off just you know selling those stocks, and just coming back to the market in October. And for the fifth year in a row, stocks are up in the month of May. And I, you know, is is can we retire this phrase, or can we at least banish it just to the realm of Wall Street traders? Because this really seems like one of those things that is just. It has no place for individual investors who have any sort of a long-term investing horizon. Well, I'll give you some data, and then you can decide for yourself whether to retire it. And I'm using my data off of uh, the kind of similar to our company, uh, funnily named uh, website MoneyChimp, uh, which gives. <laughs> The I'm unfamiliar with money, you know, it's, money it's chimp. A little bit like Motley Fool. I don't know about that name, uh, but they've got a lot of useful calculators and stuff there. So uh, one of the things that uh, they've got is an aggregation of stock market results by month uh, from 1950 through 2016, and so the months of May. I just did this today: May, June, July, August, September. Uh, cumulatively, over the last fifty-six years, okay, zero percent returns. Okay, over those five months, over the other seven months of the year, six point seven percent returns. This is why the phrase is out there. You can discount it as making no economic sense, uh, but there's probably more historical. And I didn't break any of this down to see whether. Uh, this is a trend which holds up any longer. But back in the day, when a lot of your Wall Street uh, operators would have been taking the summer off, things were just slower. Our business is slower in the summer. Uh, people, despite having access to uh, the internet and and the other places where they find our services, uh, we see great seasonality. And people, thankfully, I think, still use their summer for other things than jobs and money. Uh, and, and so, that is perhaps the origin of why this data exists. I don't, I'm not recommending anybody sell their stocks and then come back you know, at the end of September or October or something like that when you start seeing positive returns. All, the, the positive returns are basically very much concentrated between October and April, historically. I, I don't think that that's Something that makes sense to expect going forward, but it is what history has shown. I'm not going to ask you to break out the data like by decade or something like that, but it just it seems like one of those phrases that um, held more weight back in the 1950s and 60s, and you know maybe even through the through the 80s than it does in this century. Well, just because investing is so much different, there are so many more people involved, and, and just the basic process of it is so different than it was in the 50s and 60s when you started investing. So, uh, I'm looking at, uh, let's see, just 1996 through 2016, and I've got uh, my, you know, a little bit of positive returns for May, down for June, uh, slightly up for July, way down August, down September. So, it's over the last 20 years, it's been kind of the same. I, I don't think... I don't think that's reason enough to sell. Fair enough. Before we get to our next story, I want to say thanks to Bombfell for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men. 
that helps find the right clothes for you. Here's how it works. You fill out just a simple questionnaire. You're matched with a dedicated personal stylist, and that person handpicks every piece. They'll email you a few selections, and you get 48 hours to sort of check it out, think about it. If you want to make some changes, you can do that. You're in total control. And they scour menswear collections of brands and designers from around the world, and they send the pieces that are going to work best for you for wherever you are at whatever stage in life you are. If you're just looking to up your game a little bit in terms of your clothing, or you're looking to save a little money, looking to spend a little bit more, it's it's all customized just for you, and they ship it right to your door so you don't have to spend hours shopping at the store, which for me, I'll just speak for myself, Going clothes shopping is among the most soul-crushing things I can do with my waking hours. You just pay for the clothes that you keep, and you send the rest back at no charge. And I mentioned this yesterday, Bombfell is the only styling service that does not charge a styling fee or a subscription fee. Uh, this was a really easy... Uh, their website is great. It was a really easy questionnaire to fill out. The sign-up process was simple, um, and the... The stylist who got assigned to me, that poor soul who got assigned to me, just just nailed it. Sent me a bunch of stuff. It was great. Um, and for our dozens of listeners, we have a special offer. You get twenty five dollars off your first purchase. So just go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's bombfell.com slash fool and get twenty five dollars off. Who doesn't want that? Um, let's move on to Kellogg. Uh, Kellogg is laying off hundreds of people in Texas, Ohio, Florida, New York, Michigan. And it is due to a trend that we have seen, certainly in the soda industry, and um, not getting as much headlines as as what's happening with cord cutting and ESPN, and that is declining sales of breakfast cereal. Um, I I would hasten to point out, however, uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi have been dealing with the trend of declining soda sales in North America for over a decade now. And you go back ten years, you look at those stocks compared to Kellogg's, and uh, they're doing much better in terms of rewarding shareholders. And Kellogg is struggling; they are re- <laughs> they are really struggling. And it's I mean, obviously General Mills is as well. But I don't know. Maybe maybe my home is an outlier because we go through a lot of breakfast cereal in my home. Um, but. Th- this really seems like for for all of the headlines that have ri- been written, and all the column inches that have been written about Disney's inability to stem the tide of ESPN losses, this seems like uh, Disney's handling that a lot better than Kellogg is handling falling breakfast cereal sales. Yeah, so far, well, of course, Disney has a lot of other things going on, uh, and Kellogg's has uh, some other packaged foods, but the uh, breakfast cereals are pretty critical to their operations. And, you know, they're a consumer staple, so you don't expect amazing returns, but they have certainly underperformed the packaged foods group by quite a bit uh, over really any time period you want to look at over the last 15 years. So, what was once core uh, to life, I would say, sugary breakfast cereals. <laughs> right. And I grew up with more of them than you did, which yes. we've covered before on this show. Um, but it's, uh, and my kids don't get enough sugary breakfast cereals uh, either. So wait, you're not, you're not, a co- I blame their mother. Oh. <laughs> 
But it just who, who insists that they should eat more healthy foods than what their dad picks up at the store when he's allowed to shop. Um, I, you have to be allowed to shop. You can't just do that on your own. I can, I can, but then you know it. It uh, is evaluated when I come home. Well, that's you know that's that's if I come that's home a... with uh, some tricks and cocoa puffs and uh, frosted flakes. It's I'm, I'm let's put aside my shopping privileges. Let's might put be aside revoked. the sugary cereals for one second, just in terms of like well, that's what the Americans are doing. <laughs> just in terms of breakfast cereals, period. Like, are you going through a couple of like you've got three kids, I've got three kids. In my house, we're going through at least two boxes of cereal a week. Yeah, you're doing the same. Uh, yes. So, yes. first of all, you're welcome, Kellogg's and General Mills shareholders, because we're doing our keeping part. you afloat. But we're we're bucking the trend. I mean, for, we got more more kids than the average, you know, two point three, or whatever, or one point seven. Yeah, millennials aren't even having kids anymore. Yeah, that's true. So, um, we're a dying breed. <laughs> Literally, we're a dying <laughs> breed. Um, we touched on this uh, earlier this morning before we started taping Mount Rushmore. You, you, do you have your Mount Rushmore of breakfast cereal? Because I got mine. Well, I would argue that if you're going to have the Mount Rushmore of breakfast cereals, that two need to be sugary and two non. That's that's just how. That's my understanding of what the Grand Council has required for the Mount Rushmore of, of breakfast cereals. That's one way to go about it. Yeah, it's the Grand Council ruling. What do you mean? Okay, that's fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with the Grand Council. What do you go? What are your What are your two um, non-sugary cereals on the on the Mount Rushmore? I, I think it's got to be Cheerios, and and I would. I mean, Cheerios is just there. Yeah. There's no point in arguing. There's no point in anybody even writing in to argue about that with you. And people write in to argue with you all the time about things as trivial as the breakfast cereal Mount Rushmore. But it's Rice Krispies and, and Cheerios in my book. Uh, marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address. Uh, and yeah, we love it when people write in or hit us up on Twitter. Uh, cheer, really, you're going Rice Krispies as see, Rice Krispies sort of has the image of a sugary cereal, but it's not as it, but it's really not in the same way, particularly when you consider the other versions of Rice Krispies are really like they're loading up on chocolate and frosted. Rice Krispies. Oh, yeah. I could see putting Cocoa Krispies on the uh, Mount Rushmore, too, or Frosted Rice. Frosted Rice Krispies. Yeah. Frosted Krispies. I think I'm but go- they're not on the Mount Look, Rushmore. As you said, Cheerios is unassailable. And anyone who attempts to argue that Cheerios is not on the Mount Rushmore of breakfast cereals is just. They're just wrong. They're just wrong. Yeah. They're, you, you disqualify yourself immediately when you try and come with that argument. Some things are just objective facts. Yeah. So I'm going Cheerios and Wheaties. No. No? No. <laughs> You're f- and partly I say that because Wheaties were not prevalent in my household growing up. So that so it seems unlikely to me that, that anybody else was eating them. But you and I are my experience being universal. <laughs> but but you and I are are old enough to remember when at least from an advertising standpoint Wheaties was like first with you know, I mean uh, that was the pinnacle for athletes Particularly Olympic athletes or just professional athletes, if you got on the box of Wheaties, I mean that was. Here's what I'm saying. Okay, you're you're you've got the stonecutters up on Mount Rushmore, and they're they're carving Tony the Tiger yeah. for Frosted Flakes because he's there. He's there. He's there. Yeah. What are they carving for for Wheaties? Um, I don't know. Maybe just the Wheaties. Like logo. the Olympic uh, ice hockey team, the, all of them. Sure. That's going to take up the whole mountain. Makes no sense. Your whole argument makes no sense. 
What are you going for the the, the your two sugary ones? I'm I'm going to go with Frosted Flakes, and I believe Frosted Flakes is actually the class I would say of the sugary cereals. Yes, and really, you need something that screams out '70s and just the the. Uh, omnipresence of the characters that were uh, promoting sugary cereals, and and I think it's Captain Crunch. Yeah, I think I think that's you can make a pretty good argument for that. I, I want to pause that for just one second because um, nothing illustrates the the attempted health trend, and I I do say attempted the attempted health trend in breakfast cereals more than just. The name changes that have happened. The cereals themselves haven't changed. We're just changing the names because things like what are now, I think, honey smacks. When we were kids, those were sugar smacks. Just the the fact that the word sugar has been removed from the official names of some of the best-selling cereals over time, and they were bestsellers in the '70s, and they are still bestsellers today. It's just that oh, we got we got. We got to try and trick people into thinking there's not a lot of sugar in this. Let's just take the word sugar out of the name. All right. I'm going to argue that if they're trying to do that, they're not trying that hard because one of the brands that's promoted on the Kellogg's site right now, I didn't even know this existed, was Keebler cereal with chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> I mean, they're not even making uh, the faux attempt that Cookie Crisp made. Like, it's. With chocolate chip cookies, yes. Now for breakfast, chocolate chip cookies. That's that was one of those things where even as a kid, I could look at at um, Cookie Crisp and just go, "Boy, that's that's not. We're, they're they're not even trying to. That's not cereal. I I actually feel I would feel guilty about that. I might eat that as a snack if or it was dessert dry. or something. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think I can eat that. Um, I what think, are what are your four? Uh, I, I, here's You're what, sticking with Wheaties. I'm sticking with Wheaties. I'm going Cheerios, Wheaties, Rice Krispies, Frosted Flakes. You're actually putting Rice Krispies in the sugary cereal category. I think I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah. That's just because I think because I think there actually are sugary versions of Rice Krispies. I know, but you know what? This is where people can um, can email us marketfoolery at fool dot com. Send us your Mount Rushmore of breakfast cereals, and just know that I mean Cheerios has got to be on it. Unless here's the thing, Cheerios has got to be on it. But I'm I'm willing to entertain the case. I think I would, if nothing else, I would find it entertaining to read someone's case for excluding Cheerios from the Mount Rushmore of breakfast cereals. Come up with four more Hall of Fame Mount Rushmore central to American life cereals than Cheerios. Yes. Yeah. Marketfoolery at fool.com. If only the rest of America cared about cereal as much as we do, Kellogg's would still be employing people. They would not be laying people off, and their stock would be doing a lot better than it's doing right now. Um, you can read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues at Motley Fool Funds. You can go to foolfunds.com and check out Declarations, which is the free monthly newsletter from Bill Barker and the team at Fool Funds. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan, who's pulling double duty today because Dan Boyd is already working on Fool Fest. Remember, Fool Fest this Thursday and Friday, so we are off tomorrow. We will be back on Monday. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Monday.